0: My name is Andy Diemer, and you are listening to the Fail Better Podcast. You know, everyone else talks to startup founders and CEOs and product leaders about their greatest successes. And while that's interesting, wouldn't you really like to hear about the failures? Don't you want to hear from the team behind Yahoo 360 or the Apple Lisa or the Juicero? Well, this is the Fail Better Podcast, where we talk to great product managers and get them to open up about their worst products and where they screwed up and what they could have done better to turn them around. Today, I'm talking to Aaron Newton. He's been running startups for decades. He was employee number six at Cloudera. They just IPO'd for like $2 billion. That's not bad. He's now head of product and a co-founder of Thanks. That's like thank you with an X. They just closed their second round of funding for $17 million. They have an incredible customer loyalty app. You should download it now and go get free ice cream and pizzas and stuff like that. His original startup, though, was the one I loved the most. It was one of the very first MP3 download sites, epitonic.com. It was Pitchfork before Pitchfork existed. It had millions of customers. It won a Webby. It even beat out this American life for a Webby. I mean, that's amazing. It got acquired, and then one day it was gone. Well, today I'm gonna to find out what happened to Epitonic.com and what Aaron could have done differently to save his company. Aaron, hi, and welcome to the Fail Better Podcast. Tell me the original pitch for Epitonic.
1: There wasn't really a pitch. I, it, was, um, it was just like a happy accident. I was working at a, a the first startup I really joined I was 22, I don't remember exactly, and I, I, I built things. I was, I, I was designing interfaces and building interfaces, and on the side, one of my high school friends and I, we wanted to talk about music with this internet thing, and so we started literally stealing accounts on zoom.com because it gave you five megabytes of storage, and we would upload a single MP3 to each account, and then we kind of created... A, basically a music blog like this was before those things existed you know and so we would write a couple of paragraphs about a band that we really cared about and then we would link to that mp3 that we uploaded just one and i remember the bands that we were writing about were just they weren't necessarily new music it was music that we were that we felt like the the world needed to know about
0: like what kind of bands
1: oh it was like the vss and fugazi and oh like i'm trying to remember like there was a sonic youth album that was sort of new and so we wrote about that and so this
0: was before napster and before all the other MP3 long before sharing services correct
1: and the name of the site was called sonic palette mm-hmm. and just like every day, we would just we had the discipline to go and upload a track, and and it, it was like it was kind of like we would tag team. Like my friend Scott would upload one, I would upload upload one, and then we'd publish it, and then we'd read each other's thing and be like, "Oh, good one! That's a great one to write about." And we we're trying to kind of document all the bands that were just really important to us, and I, we were probably the only readers. <laughs> <laughs> and um, somewhere in there, my boss at the time went walking past my desk with a Rio. Which was the first MP3 player. Period. The first. And I kind of followed him into his office, just kind of like, um, uh, um, I I need to I need to see that. And so he, you know, like he's like, I don't even know how to use this thing. You know, do you know anything about it? And I was like, oh, a little bit. You know, I've been doing some music stuff on the internet. And he was like, Well, what are you talking about? And I showed it to him the site we'd been building. We probably had something like I don't know, 40 bands on the page, it, and it wasn't even that amazing or anything. But it, he looked at it and he was like. I think you should go do this. I was like, beg your pardon. And he said, you should quit working here for me and you should go do this. I'll help you get started. <laughs> then he connected me to an incubator. I, you know, it, it went really fast after that. I ended up sitting at like this high powered lawyer office down in in the valley and they're like, well, what kind of corporation do you want to create? And I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. I'm a schmo I have no idea what you're even talking about. But kind of every time I turned around, that was what was happening. It was just I got swept up by it. And this was kind of the heady days of the dot com thing where if you had an idea that didn't exist, you just got started. But unlike everyone else who came right around that same time, who just blossomed into a reality, MB3.com e in in blah blah blah. Napster came a while after that, but all of them, they just immediately closed these giant rounds of funding. And that didn't really happen to me. You know, like, um, I hired a CEO, I ended up co-founding the company with my friend Scott and my friend, Justin. We basically created the company on New Year's day, 1999. And shortly after that, I hired Terry, the CEO. He was, he had just graduated from Haas business school and he was kind of looking for something. And he knew a lot more about what to do. And so he was the CEO, I wasn't. I was very glad not to be the
0: CEO. How do you even hire a CEO for your own company?
1: The same way that a 22 year old incorporates a company. I don't frickin' know, it just kinda happened. Like, my former boss, who was gonna give us some seed money, introduced me to him. And then we ended up kind of like getting, getting burritos together a couple of times and talking about it. You know, next thing you know, you have a lifelong friend.
0: So what set you apart from the other music sites at the time?
1: We were um, an editorial music site. Most of the businesses that were kind of springing up were unfiltered. Like mp3.com used to boast that they had 400,000 tracks. And I was used to say, and 399,000 of them are garbage. They kind of like just made it up to the consumer to find something good. And they thought their software would fix it. But anybody who used mp3.com it was great if you were an artist it was a harbinger of what was to come with being able to be your own publisher but as a consumer it was pretty terrible and we had this different ideal it came from that original editorial thing with my friend where we only wanted to put music on the site that we wanted on the site i remember we were talking to dreamworks records and we were trying to get dr octagon and other things that were in their portfolio that we thought really belonged in our collection or whatever our we wanted to write about it and they signed a contract with us, and it's the first thing they sent us was Buck Cherry. I remember we put it in, and we hit play, and we were like, um, no, this is not going on our website. And so we told them that, and then they were angry at us. It was like probably a year later before they started sending us stuff that we wanted to publish, and it was only because we established ourselves as having a valuable editorial voice. I would argue that the baton that we passed, if we passed it to anyone, why is my main, my mind blinking right this very second? Who am I thinking of? Pitchfork. Thank you. Sorry. When Epitonic kind of stopped being a thing, Pitchfork really kind of continued on with that same kind of attitude. And they don't pull their punches. They call something terrible, terrible. We didn't write about it if it was terrible. We just didn't put it on the website. We wanted to have this philosophy that if you came to the website, that you you might find something you didn't like, but you wouldn't find something that was terrible. That was highly subjective. And it took a lot of conversations internally to kind of understand what that meant. What it really came down to is that someone at the company had to sponsor something to get on the website. Someone at the company had to say, I think that's good music. And then literally every person at the company was a contributor. You know Noel. I hired him to do QA, and the first thing he did was created a 20th 20th century composer section of the website and filled it with the most amazing music. Like everybody kind of brought their passion. And so almost everyone at the company brought some sort of music aesthetic that manifested itself onto the website.
0: Now I remember Epitonic growing quickly from just a couple of, you know, the four buddies to dozens of editors, engineers, salespeople, marketing. How did it grow, you know, from, this very small operation to this huge endeavor?
1: Well, so we, we closed our A round of financing, which was $3 million. In that day and age was nothing because you had to have your own servers. Like we had a rack in colo, and we had another rack in the office so that we could, you know, work on things locally. Everything was really expensive. We had a system administrator, like... Like no one needs those things anymore because you have Amazon. We had an Oracle license because SQL, MySQL didn't exist. You know, like It's just like huge fundamental expenses that you couldn't get away from. So when we closed that round, we quickly ramped up. We hired basically a sales team, but they really did... Label relations, they called record labels to establish relationships and assign contracts that allowed us to put music on the internet. And then we had a production team that literally would get a box of CDs from those record labels and put them in a disc and then rip them and then convert them into numerous formats and upload them because we hadn't automated that yet. It took a lot of people to make something that today you would just go upload it to SoundCloud and then embed it on your blog that was powered by Blogger or whatever. Like none of that stuff existed, so we had to build every single thing. We built our own content management system. Blah blah blah. It was a ton of ton of stuff you had to build yourself, and that's why it kind of quickly turned into a large group of people.
0: Yeah, I, I remember those days. But still, three million in funding must have felt pretty amazing. Was that the high point of Epitonic for you?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, the funding itself wasn't that. It was the. 12 months after the funding where I felt like the company was aligned around the same vision and we had hired really good people and we were building really good things and the record label started to be way easier to sell because you'd be you'd call up Touch and go, and say we work with Southern, and then you get touch and go, and then you freaking call up Ian McKay and say we'd like to get Discord, and they were so like we don't do stuff like that, but then they did. Like we got the respect that I was that I wanted. The downside to all of this was these are the heady days of the .com, and it was all about you know market acquisition and not about revenue, and I didn't think about any of those things. I just was trying to build a product that people wanted to use, and so we got to the point where we had whatever, a million people every month coming and using the website. But that was just, I mean, that was that was nowhere near enough to weather the storm that came when it all crashed. It was pretty abrupt. One day we had a series B, a $10 million series B that was um, being put together. And the investor was just really excited. To this day, I still talk to him. He's now over at True Ventures, Tony Conrad. You know, like we were really excited about the next leg of the journey. And then the whole thing just went out the window. At one point, Snowball, yeah, I don't remember those guys they owned um ign i think anyway they they offered us something like 12 million dollars to buy the company this was after our funding kind of disappeared and it was all in stock but i still felt like i still excited that we were actually going to like become part of an organization and etc i had a little identity crisis because i would have gotten a meaningful chunk of that but then Within literally three days, they rescinded the offer, and a month later, their stock was in the toilet. And then, mm. s- six months later, they were bought. You know, like it was—it was a wasteland after that.
0: A wasteland for everybody, or, or just for Epitonic?
1: Oh, kind of everything. Epitonic died a slow death after that. Like I managed to get it acquired for no money to save jobs, and then slowly over the coming years, even the company that acquired it slowly laid everyone off until finally I was out too. And then I didn't have a job for a year because it felt like there wasn't one. Like the second wave, Web 2.0 or whatever, hadn't really arrived yet. So it was a couple of years of just, of, you know, lots of people that I knew didn't have a thing to, to work
0: on. So you guys were Pitchfork before Pitchfork and you were mp3.com, but you didn't suck. What went wrong?
1: I think that probably the biggest problem is that I was building a product from me. Like, I wanted to build a product that I wanted. The kid in me that was a music collector and went to shows and cared about independent music and quality and things like that, I wasn't thinking about how do you build a scalable business that actually drives revenue and value to shareholders and all of that kind of stuff. It was an artistic endeavor almost and, you know, an editorial one, which probably speaks to why, like, we had such a hard time raising funds and Why pretty much everyone in Silicon Valley turned us down because the vision that I had was one of people out there could listen to better music. That if you put Nina Simone next to Britney Spears and asked anyone objectively which of these is better, they would say Nina Simone. And that's just total hubris, you know? And so nowhere in there were we thinking about building a sustainable business because that. One, that wasn't me, that's not who I was, but also because the times didn't demand it. You couldn't do that now. You wouldn't get any money.
0: But you must have had ideas about ways to make money, uh, ways to turn it around, Oh right? my goodness,
1: we had so many harebrained schemes. So CNET was our Series A investor, and we went over there like a month after we closed the round, and we met with the business development team that led the investment. Their CEO, Shelby Bonnie, was there. We were talking about revenue model. Like what it should be. How could we do it? And I was a little disgruntled at CNET, despite the fact that they led the round, because the $3 million they gave us came with these terms that we would turn around and spend a million of it buying ads from CNET.
0: Wait, 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 wait. You had to take the money that CNET gave you and buy ads from CNET with it?
1: The SEC later outlawed this practice because it basically allowed companies to buy the equity of someone else and then recognize their own capital as revenue. But anyway, so like every month we were writing them a check for tons of money.
0: (laughs) That sounds so much like an Enron scam.
1: It was a little scammy, which is why the SEC cut it out. Anyway, so we're over there talking about revenue model and we're kind of like going around the table. We could do this. We could do that. We could do this. And then typically Halsey Miner, the other co-founder of CNET, who was very erratic character, kind of shows up late and kind of storms into the room and says, what are we talking about? And one of the business development people was like, oh, we're talking about revenue model. And he's like, well, what do you got? And we start kind of like, well, we could do this. We could do advertising. We could sell, sell music. We could do whatever. And he said, like, stop, you don't have a revenue model. And everyone in the room was kind of like, well, I mean, we could do this. We could do that. We could do something. He's like, no, stop. You do not have a revenue model. And the room kind of paused for a minute. And I raised my hand. Remember, I'm like, now I'm 23 and a half or whatever. And I raised my hand. And I'm like, well, I have an idea for one. And all eyes turned to me. And I said, We could invest our capital in companies smaller than us and then burden them with buying advertising from us with that money and then recognize it as revenue. And (laughs) there's just like stunned, pregnant silence. (laughs) And then a moment later, everyone just burst out laughing. And that was the last time we talked about it. It just killed the entire conversation about finding a revenue model. And.
0: I mean, I'm not kidding. It was just a different time. But I'm just confused. Are you really telling me that you guys didn't have any ideas for how to make money? Like there was no advertising,
1: no subscription service? No, no, so there was definitely no subscription service. But we did have, when we first launched, we actually had the ability to to sell tracks for $0.75 a piece. It just didn't work. There was no adoption. Remember, you could buy an MP3 player at the time that could hold like 30 tracks or something. The adoption of mp3s was meteoric, especially when Napster showed up. But competing with those services was really hard. And the people out there who were trying to do it, eMusic as being a great example, they were having some success at creating these binding contracts to lock up the rights. But it's not like they were making money either. And advertising being the other one, um, is really expensive to run these things. Again, 30 humans... Cost a lot of money, not to mention having a rack and bandwidth and stuff was stupid expensive. Plus paying Oracle, Oracle was like $80,000 a year or something like that. And so advertising when like when we had on the website requires a sales force which we didn't go create you had to have a way bigger scale than like a million consumers showing up in order to try and actually monetize your way out with advertising so it was just you know you could argue it was before its time the reason why pitchfork can do what it does is because it doesn't cost a ton of money to administrate like the way it used to when you had to run everything and build everything and on top of that, the world of advertising has been through several generations. And things like Google AdWords and other stuff like that, it's changed a lot. It doesn't take as much capital to run a business, so it's way more efficient. There wasn't a prayer. It didn't have a chance.
0: But you've, you've run three or four startups since then. Do you ever go back and think, if only we'd done this, we could have survived?
1: No, I look at it now and, and think it was folly. So Justin, it, you know, Epitonic changed hands and ownership a couple of times, but he ended up basically getting it back. And so now Epitonic is still a thing. All that content we created is still there and more. He's a professor at um, Columbia University in Chicago teaching like new media marketing and stuff like that. And every year he has this class of 30 or 40 students who all want experience, and he invites them all to kind of help write content, go do marketing for the website, try and sell advertising. It's like a teaching tool for him, but he's really just exploiting them.
0: <laughs>
1: like, that's not really true. I think they actually – like he's a very popular professor, and I think get the opportunity to work on it is really fun. But the point is that like the website is still there, and it doesn't cost anything to run now because it doesn't cost things anything to run – stuff like that anymore anyway. And so like it turned into a thing I couldn't bear to look at when it was under other ownership and they redesigned it and it was horrible. And then it came back to him a couple of years ago and now I can, like, I totally respect it and I'm proud of it again. And I really am appreciative of the fact that he kind of saved it. But to your point, like, I don't think he makes any money off of it or anything. I think it's just this passionate thing that he still puts his energy into.
0: But a lot of people say that you should, be your own first customer that way you're making the product that you really want are you saying that's a, a dangerous seductive road to take
1: it is i don't mean to imply that there's no utility in it certainly you should build something you're passionate about you shouldn't go build a product for someone else if you don't care about the thing that they're going to do with it you'll you'll have a hard time really sympathizing with your customer and anticipating their needs and you'll be very reactive you know they'll say the Thomas Edison thing or whatever, I want a faster horse, and you'll get obsessed with that instead of thinking really dynamically elsewhere. But if you're building a product primarily for yourself, you are a cohort that's pretty small, the number of people who are like you. And what you can do, this is true with any product. If you have like a core customer base, whether you're that core or not, when you launch that product and you get some small traction with that early adopter group that early adopter group is going to be really good at communicating with you about what they want, but what they're going to demand from you are like ever increasingly customized features for their use case. And what, that seduction of listening to that customer really well is is that you will continue to build product features for this group of core users that no normal new user would encounter or understand the need for and so you won't be acquiring and growing the the number of consumers on the product those new consumers you aren't acquiring aren't also talking to you and helping you design a more rounded opportunity and so if you keep laser focusing on those early adopters you'll you'll start building features that we've all seen in products where you're like, I don't know why anybody would ever use this little thing over here.
0: What's a good example of that?
1: You know, like go into Gmail labs or something like that. There's tons of features in there that you're like, I would never do that. Add recipes to the bottom of every email you send or something like that. You know, like you're like, why did an engineer spend time on that? Because they were passionate about it or their mom was or whatever. The internet is kind of littered with companies that I mean, Epitonic was like that. We built a a a streaming service where you could create a random playlist based on any given artist on our platform. So if you're listening, you're looking, reading about Sonic Youth, you hit play, and then suddenly you're just getting all this music that kind of like is sort of you know like Sonic Youth. And it won a Webby. It was really popular. Did that save the company? Did that help us acquire you know grow our consumer base? Did it help us acquire advertisers? No. It was what we wanted it to be.
0: And yet that's essentially the basis for Pandora and Spotify.
1: Yeah, but if you look at those companies, they came out at a very different way. They don't care what music you listen to. They built an abstract service that was really designed to help any individual consumer listen to the music that they were passionate about. That scales. You can sell that to Kenny G fans and Bella Fiat, uh, Giafra fans or whatever. Like, like you, you can sell that to anybody. We didn't do that. My point is, is that like when you when you have a core customer base, Even if it's like software for podcasters, you'll have some early adopters who will say, it'd be awesome if the feature did this one thing for me. And that sounds really good. But the discipline that you have to bring to building products is to go validate that with the customers you don't have. Right now, we have customers who come to us all the time and say, I really wish your product did this thing. And I'll hear that and I'll be like, that is interesting. I need to think about that. One, it's a hard thing to not say to that customer who is literally speaking to you, I'll go build it. Like, that's hard. It doesn't sound like it would be hard, but it actually really is to just say, maybe. It makes you feel kind of like a jerk. So then you you gotta take that feedback and you gotta go talk to all your existing customers, if you have enough of them who are diverse, and say, would you use this feature? Okay, you would use it. Would you pay for this feature? That's a really strong indicator. Now, you've got to also go talk to the customers who are looking to start using your product and see if that one feature resonates with these people who aren't yet using it. And if it's a consumer product, it maybe it means that you create a variant of your sign-up flow that really highlights that feature and see if that resonates with anyone. And the other ways of validating it is to build a really simplistic, minimum viable product. That's another thing that's a seduction is building it too well. If you build a really good product that takes forever to ship without extremely strong validation, then you can just end up wasting a lot of resources. Product management is about opportunity cost evaluation there's what you can build, and there's a hundred of those things, and there's what those things cost, and then it's what their value is. And if you're not really good at understanding the costs and understanding the opportunity, what their value is, which means vetting it not just against your own assumptions and gut, but also your existing customers and customers you don't have, then of those hundred things, you're likely to build something that doesn't actually drive what you're trying to move, whether that's acquisition or retention or whatever. And then After you've spent all those resources building something that no one uses, what you've really cost yourself is not that time. It's that you didn't build the thing over here that everyone did want. It's the kind of thing that can totally sink a company when you just build the wrong
0: thing. That's a mistake uh, I've seen made many times. Do you think A-B testing is the way to solve it?
1: Well, so first off, A-B tests are really useful to validate product changes where you're trying to optimize something that you know you're after they aren't particularly good at helping you determine what feature to build they're really good at optimizing a sign-up flow or some other kind of funnel. So let's say that you have a, a product that people are using, and you want to introduce a new feature, and you want to get consumers to use that feature. Do you put the button over here? Do you put the button over there? Do you use this text or that text? Is the button red? Is it blue? Is there not a button? Is it a modal? Is it you know like there's like a million different ways to skin that cat, and you're relying on your your own kind of like hunches about how to do that. And you know what? The first time you build anything. This is what experience gets you because you've built so many things. You're like, oh, no, this is the right way to build a sign-up page. And so you're kind of relying on all the lessons you've ever learned to build a good one. And you build it and you ship it. And now you have data. But let's say that you're getting a 60% conversion rate on that page. And you're like, I, I just need to be better. That's where an A-B test is really good. It helps you say, like, well, I can imagine four different ways that we might make this better. But I don't know which one would actually work. So I'm just going to run all four of them and divide my consumers into four or five maybe you have a control group and you go test the hypothesis to see which one bears fruit but what it won't do for example is tell you that in the hundred features that you could build which one you should but it's really no substitute for talking to your customers literally speaking to your customers and speaking to potential customers and listening to sales calls and Checking in with your sales team to ask them about themes that they hear and all that kind of stuff. You need to validate those things with real people. And multivariate tests are hard to do that. So that effect, like the, the anecdote here at Thanks is that um, the way Thanks works is you you download our app, you create an account, and then we ask you to give us a credit card. We don't actually ever know that credit card number. It's just that we send it straight from your phone to Visa or MasterCard or whoever. And then what happens is if you use that credit card to make a purchase at a merchant that is a customer of ours, then we give you loyalty progress. So if they have like a spend $100, get $10 off your next purchase kind of thing, Once we have the credit card enrolled, then Visa tells us you've now spent $100, give them the $10 reward, that kind of thing. So from a consumer perspective, that one piece of friction, adding a credit card, eliminates all the other friction that normally exists in the punch card world where you have to do something every time you make a purchase. Okay, so getting people to give us that credit card. We constantly are iterating on trying to figure out different ways to ask that question for that credit card to get a higher conversion rate. And we had a customer about five months ago who was looking at our signup flow and they said, we want you to put more description about why you need the credit card on this page. And we pushed back and we were like, we've done so many tests on this. And every time we remove information, every time we take away that paragraph, take away that diagram, take away that illustration, and we just simplify it to, well, now we need a credit card, we get a better conversion rate. And... They were like we don't believe that. If you want us to sign and launch with your product, you got to go add more information cuz we think our consumers won't understand. And so I said fine, we'll do a multivariate test. We'll do one and you can write whatever you want, you can propose the text and then we'll do ours. So we started the test and they they weren't driving that many signups like our whole product across all of our merchants dwarfed out any one merchant on our platform so but at first it was just their customers and it it looked like it proved true that they were right that more text was having a higher yield the the, the sample size was still pretty small but the, the leading first thousand consumers we showed it to or whatever showed that they were right and it hit me like a ton of bricks just like are you kidding me you know how many times i have again and again and again validated that anything here reduces this conversion. And so I literally went back and went through every single experiment we'd ever run, every single product launch that I'd ever analyzed. And so then I created a thing in our wiki where I started documenting every single experiment. But in addition to that, I documented the sample size. And what was really clear was that the sample size of our earlier experiments was really small because we were still an early company. We only had 30 signups a day. And so we'd let it run for a month and be like, wow, okay, several hundred people this is the way it worked. And so we would draw a conclusion from that sample size, from that experiment. And what would happen is over time, that conclusion would become kind of a law. It'd be like, oh, we did that one experiment. where We tried the difference between the text, read about our security promise, or read about our privacy promise, and also nothing, no text at all. And the experiment that had no text at all outperformed the security or privacy version of our promise. And what came out of that was the conclusion that like, if you show the consumer information about security or privacy, you will make them more reluctant to give you information because now they're thinking about it. We know that we're secure because we don't know the credit card number. You can't steal it from us. It's not there. We never know it. Promising that to the consumer just meant making think about it more. And that was the conclusion we took. So this one customer who wanted us to put that in writing, to put that in front of the consumer and their yield is better. I'm like, how is that possible? But then I go look at the thing that we ran two or three years ago when our volume was really slow. And I'm like, wow, the sample size was worthless. Of course, the next thing we do is we increase the sample size of the experiment we were running for that one merchant to go for all of our merchants, like a hundred thousand people through this one test. And it totally actually flipped. Over time, when we got the sample size large enough, it became clear that their paragraph about what was happening was actually worse. It's just that the sample size for that experiment for them was also small. But it nonetheless rattled me. It made me go back and read every single conclusion I'd ever taken, document what action we took, document the sample size. I go back and I look at those things and ask myself, do I need to go reval- revalidate these hypotheses? What happens is, is that over time, your your customers change, your volume changes, your business changes, your product changes. The learnings you take away from a multivariant test help you optimize, but you can't think of those things as permanent. They're perennial, and you need to kind of constantly go and question your own assumptions. Because if you don't do that, you'll find yourself suddenly irrelevant because something changed and you didn't. And so... I think part of it is is trying to bake in these kinds of things into your process, so that every time you ship a feature, you're asking yourself, "What are what are the assumptions that I'm making here? What are they based on, and what do I need to validate?" Then you can bake into the development process how you're going to confirm your hunches. There's a great website called Onboarding.com. That might not be the actual URL, but if you go look for it, you'll find it. Um, where there, where there's a guy who literally tears down the onboarding experience of app after app after app
0: yeah you're talking about uh, useronboard.com
1: yep like my favorite one is he did the onboarding for the yo app like he's he'll take a screenshot of every single part of the user experience and draw arrows to it and say like this part's good because of that this part i don't even know what it means and it's weird how having someone who's never who doesn't work on the product look at it will see the thing that you can't and so that's a good reason for doing user testing and handing it even to someone, a friend who's never seen it before and say, try and do this. I remember, I'll give you a great example of this. This is my funniest one I can think of. I went to visit a merchant who was launching on our platform. And I sat down with their chief accountant, chief finance officer. And she's like, well, I don't even have the app. And I was like, well, let's fix that. So she picked up her phone and she set it back down onto the table. So just sitting flat on the table. So she downloads the app, she creates an account, and then it comes up and it says, now we need a credit card. And there's two buttons. It says, use my camera or type it in. So she clicks the use my camera button. The camera turns on and it draws this little bracket on the screen where you you have to line up the camera with your credit card and it'll read the number for you. It's actually really easy and it's kind of magical.
0: We've all seen that with Uber and Lyft and, and so yes, many other but at
1: apps. At the time, this was kind of new. This is four years ago. This was a new thing. Clearly, she had never seen anything like it. But remember, her phone is laying on the desk, which means the camera is flush with the desk, which means her screen is completely black. And on the screen is a bracket that is a rectangle. And in that bracket, it says, line your credit card up with the bracket. She takes her credit card and lays it on the screen of her phone, face up with the numbers facing her. And she puts it down and then waits for a second and then kind of like, I, I don't I don't know. And I'm sitting there next to her, just dumbfounded. At first, I was like, how does she expect this to work? And then it dawns on me, like, she doesn't even know that it should be using the camera. She's never seen that. That's just as magical. And so I, I reach over and I said, oh, you, you use your camera. And she was like, oh, that makes much more sense. And then she puts her card down. She picks up the phone and she lines it up and it takes a picture, it reads the, the number, and then she's done. And she was embarrassed. But the point is, is like it's mind-boggling to see a consumer encounter an experience that you've worked so hard to make easy for them to see how they will struggle. And the most messed up part of it is that we do it ourselves. Like I pay attention when I install an app and I use it the first time, but I can't count the number of times where I'm like, I can't figure out how to do this next step. Where's the button? Oh, that's the button.
0: So is your takeaway to spend a lot more time listening to and working with the customers directly?
1: I'd say it's a mixture of things. Like one, you need to find ways to validate whatever you're doing with other people, which may or may not be your customers, literally taking a design home and showing it to your wife or to your roommate or whatever, and just saying, what would you do to get to the next step here or whatever? Sometimes I do need a giant red button that says next on it. And there've been many times where I've designed a user experience that was really elegant And it kind of took you to where you needed to be and performed way worse than the same experience with a next button that didn't need to be there, except for it was how you, the consumer could cognitively accept what was happening on the screen. And then other times where I'm like, I'm blown away that it has no impact. In in thanks, you get an introductory offer when you sign up for thanks at the merchant of your choice. So let's say you sign up for a free scoop of ice cream or something like that. So you create an account and the next screen where we're about to ask you for the credit card says, great. To get your free scoop of ice cream, we just need you to enter a credit card so that you can earn rewards. And then there's a form. You have to type in your credit card um, or click the camera button. And I was staring at this, asking myself how I could increase the yield. I'll never like, I'll never get 100%, which means I'll never stop trying to make it better. And I, it dawned on me, what if I asked a different question? What if instead of asking you, will you give me a credit card, I asked you to make a different cognitive decision, which was, this one I decided to try was, which credit card would you like to use to earn rewards? Which kind of assumes that you're going to give me a credit card. Of course you're going to give me a credit card. Basically, the button to go to the next screen with the credit card form was three icons, a Visa, American Express, or a MasterCard. And it looks like they are three buttons and you are making a decision, but they're all just one giant image. And if you touch any of them, I'm just going to the credit card page. I thought, like, what if I just framed the, the nature of the decision completely different? I ran that test. I drove way more people through it than I needed for statistical rigor because it had zero impact, literally like 0.01% or something like that. It, it, I, I still have a hard time accepting that it had no impact whatsoever. You can show a user experience to a consumer and they'll have something else going on in their brain than you do. And until you try different ways to ask the same question or present the same opportunity, That's the only way that you can validate that your product is working in a way that the most brains can comprehend and accept.
0: That anecdote is just so frustrating. I mean, it feels so familiar. Um, We are running short on time. So tell me, what's a book that you think every product manager needs to read?
1: Well, if you're doing a startup, if you're creating a company, I highly recommend The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's about the crucible of creating a company and the hard choices that you're constantly making and kind of the forces that are at play at doing it. It's not very product focused. It does have some really hard product decisions that are really insightful, but it's more about creating companies. The book I've read most recently that I really recommend to, I've recommended to so many people, this is just something I've read in the last couple of months, is um, Weapons of Math, M-A-T-H, Destruction. And it's about this woman whose name I can't remember. Uh, She has a blog called Math Babe, and she went to MIT. She's like huge mathematician. She went into finance and was kind of had front row seats to um, the financial meltdown of two thousand eight. Decided, I'm going to go work for tech because she didn't like all of the negative, bad practices she saw coming out of all of her work. Like, she was designing models for the finance industry. And then when she saw what they did with those models, she was like, I don't want a part of this. So she joined tech and then kind of saw similar things. And now has become kind of an out outspoken person who helps companies avoid creating these things that she calls weapons of math destruction, which have three qualities. And let's see if I can remember them correctly. One is that they are transparent black boxes that are understandable by almost no one. And so they are, you know, it's a, it's a box where data goes in and a decision comes out whether whether you get that home loan, whether you get that job, how bad your prison sentence is, whether or not your your school gets funding or gets shut down. It's this unknowable thing. And everybody who is subject to it can't tell what why it made that decision. The second thing is that it has enormous scale. You know, like the example she gives is that, like, yeah, 40 years ago, getting a loan at the bank was subject to the prejudices of one single human. And if he didn't like the way you looked, then you weren't getting the loan. And that's bad. And so everyone looked to computers to kind of, like, 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 alleviate that, to normalize and get away from it. But then what happened is, is that the computers basically ended up baking in a lot of the same assumptions, because it's using you know historical data to determine whether or not you you know people like you should get a home loan but the prejudice that went into the first decision is playing into the same model and the difference is is that the impact it has is now millions and millions and millions of people and then that last piece is that the models it creates use bad proxies and aren't updated i.e. instead of determining whether you should get a home loan based on your personal behavior it says well you're from a zip code of people who don't normally pay back their loans, which means that you're, by living in a zip code where other poor people are, your likelihood of getting a loan is worse, which is a downward spiral. And there's no validation of whether or not the model is wrong. Let's say that you do get a loan and you do pay it back and the model should be updated to be better. They usually aren't, they're just predatory and they're static. She picks this apart from across, I don't know, a dozen industries and how it works and gives really good examples. and. What it's done to me is it's made me way more thoughtful about how I use data to make decisions and how my customers use data to make decisions and the impact of those decisions. I won't say that I've made any huge product changes, but nonetheless, it, it just made me think a lot more about the kind of unintended consequences of bad modeling, bad proxies, black boxes, and so on.
0: And since all of us are working with such big data now, I think that really could make a difference. Uh, Both of those books sound fantastic. And I'll slap up some links on failbetterpodcast.com. What's a tool that you use that most product managers probably don't actually know about and should?
1: Like, I don't know if I have a good answer here because I I use a lot of tools that I build myself. We have this giant reporting suite that's just graphs and tables that you can export and so on that literally I coded. Like Writing code is a thing that I rely on much to the chagrin of my developers. Likewise, I, I created this Excel spreadsheet that helps me do cost-benefit analysis like or, or opportunity cost analysis for products that we could build where evaluating opportunity cost for product requires you to evaluate three different questions. One is that a product feature that you could implement has value in many ways. It might help you acquire consumers. It might help you acquire customers. It might help you shorten your sales cycle or generate more leads or increase conversions of some key feature adoption or lower your capital costs and so on. Like, In my matrix, there's probably something like 60 positive benefits from any feature we could build. And some of them are marketing and sales oriented. Some of them are kind of product oriented and process oriented. Some of them are engineering, technical debt kind of stuff. Some of them are like customer oriented. And then there's a likewise about 20 types of costs, like literal capital costs, the time it takes to build. Does it increase your technical debt? Does it rely on a resource that you don't have a lot of, et cetera? And the third thing you have to evaluate is which one of those things is important to you right now. We closed a round of financing about five months ago. And the months before that round closed, if there was something we could go do that would move a needle, but it cost money, money was more valuable to us than money is. Like it was a dollar was worth more than a dollar to us. And so anything that costs money, I was not interested in doing. But then the moment we closed our series B and we have money, now money is cheap. Money is the thing I have plenty of, and people is what I, I'm lacking, even though it's just the next day. And so when I sit down and, and think about what product feature I could build, I, I'll list out all the features I can think of. And then I'll go through this exercise where I'll literally pull in you know one of the functional leaders from the sales team and, and say, of all these things, which one of them do you think will generate the most leads? And we'll go through and we'll kind of score them relative to each other. Like, if that thing is a five, then what's this thing? That's a two. And then what's this thing? That's a 10. That thing is worth twice as much than that one you gave a five yes okay so now i have kind of a relative score and then now i know what the rough benefit of each of those things are from each individual functional leader and i also know the cost because i've gone through and done that exercise and then the last thing i do is i have another sheet where i list out all of those different factors and i say which of these things is more important to me money is more important than people or people's more important than money technical debt is less important to me than time or whatever. Then you can multiply all that together and you get a really typical kind of XY graph where you have how hard things are along one axis and how valuable it is on the other. And you'll see these clusters kind of emerge. There'll be really big things that you could go build that are super expensive, but super valuable. You'll have little tiny things that aren't very valuable, but there's a lot of them. This is where quality lives. We're like fixing a typo. Imagine you have a million typos they're all going to be down in the cost-nothing-to-fix-but-adds-no-value. And then you'll have like a cluster in the middle, and then you have a few rare ones that are in the very valuable and very cheap. And you're like, well, we should go do those first. That's, that's quote-unquote low-hanging fruit. This exercise doesn't actually tell me what to build. It does two things. One, it helps me visualize a large number. What it really does is help me get cross-functional buy-in. Because then when I'm sitting in a room and I said, this is what we're building in the next six months, these are the things on our roadmap, and someone says, why are we building that thing? I can say, because it generates a lot of leads, and that's important to us right now. And if the person on the other end of that conversation says, well, why do you think it'll take so many leads? What gives you the right to say, that's the thing? And I say, it's not me. It's our VP of sales over there. He said it was going to create a bunch of leads. Our objectives as a company this year, or this quarter, or whatever, is about acquiring new, new customers. And so... That's why this thing is on the list. And so it doesn't actually tell me which thing to build as much as it helps the whole organization realize why the thing is on the list and align around those objectives. That's an example of something that's like, it's not a product. There aren't a lot of products out there built for product managers. We're a small group. At any company, there's 100 engineers and four product managers. Anyone building software to that market is aiming at the engineers. There are very few things out there that help you really do product management that I really like.
0: And more people should be developing apps for product managers. Come on, come on, people. Uh, The Excel spreadsheet, though, sounds sort of like planning poker, but working in like three or four or even five dimensions.
1: It's also something that you can build easily yourself. It's not that
0: hard. Great. Everybody should go do that immediately. I've got one last question for you, Aaron. Who would you like to hear talk about their biggest product fail?
1: I think I would probably say Brett Taylor. Brett Taylor created FriendFeed. FriendFeed was a, a site that allowed you to kind of aggregate sharing activity into a single feed and then comment on it. And if that sounds familiar, it is because it's Facebook now. You won't remember this, but five or six years ago, Facebook, you could poke people. There were a few like games that were annoying, and you could post status updates, and then they added photos. But you couldn't share anything. And so FriendFeed was a product that was it was actually a competitor to one of my startups. I had a startup called iMinta. And both of these products would aggregate content so that if you went over to YouTube and hit like, it would show up in your feed. And then your friends would see that content and then you could have a discussion about it. So it was a private space to have a conversation about the things you were consuming on the web or creating on the web. If you upload a, a picture to Flickr or whatever, it's that kind of thing. And... They built some really fascinating technology. They, they innovated technologically, which resulted in a really superior user experience. And then Facebook bought them. And Brett went over to run products. I might be wrong about his exact title there, his responsibility. But he went over to the product team at Facebook. And then Facebook went through a huge change after that. It became way more like FriendFeed than it was Facebook, in my opinion. And like what Facebook was really good at was creating a network. But what FriendFeed did was make that network a productive purveyor of content. And the hypothesis that at least drove my startup, which again was very like that, was that I can know my friends better if I understand the media and the culture that they consume. I know you better, even though you moved away, because I see pictures of your kid, but I also see you posting about film and things like that. I thought they made just some brilliant steps when they created that
0: product. And that's still my favorite thing about Facebook today. Well, I'll ping Brett and see if he's willing to talk about friendfeed.com. But Go for it. in the meantime, Aaron. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on and talk about Epitonic and the mistakes that you've made that have made you a better product manager. Thanks for coming on the Fail Better podcast.
1: Yeah, happy to do it.
0: Now, everyone else, subscribe to Fail Better to find out more from great product managers who screwed up so that you don't have to repeat their mistakes. And if you're a great product manager, or even a pretty good one with a legendary fail that you'd like to talk about, ping me on Twitter at Andy Deemer. That's A-N-D-Y-D-E-E-M-E-R. And remember, at least it wasn't Juicero. <laughs>